0: And welcome to JTalks Live. My name is Cathy English and I'm the new chair of the Canadian Journalism Foundation and currently a Journalism Fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. The Canadian Journalism Foundation celebrates and supports excellence in journalism through a variety of programs. I want to tell you about our latest initiative, a new CJF Black Journalism Fellowship Program established to amplify Black voices and cultivate future Black newsroom leadership. We're really proud to support three fellowships in partnership with CBC, Radio Canada and CTV News with the support of generous founding sponsors, Lululemon, Aritzia and BMO Financial Group. Applications for these fellowships will open in the new year and we encourage you to check out our website for further details and we encourage you to to apply as well. This JTalk series explores pressing media issues in these trying times, and today's topic is among the most urgent. How can news organizations and journalists move forward to serve the public's need for quality, trustworthy information that serves citizens in a time of so many challenges to the media industry and society overall? We're able to explore this issue and others with thanks to the generosity of our new exclusive JTalk series sponsor, TD Bank Group. Thank you, TD Bank Group. Thanks also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. Before we get to the conversation, I want to just give you a little bit of practical information. This is a 45-minute webcast. It'll feature 30 minutes of moderated conversation, followed by 15 minutes of questions. If you want to tweet about the conversation, our hashtag is JTalksLive. If you're having technical problems, click on the Request Help button on the bottom right-hand corner, and I promise someone will respond to the email you've registered with. And now I have the honour of introducing today's esteemed guests. I won't read their entire bios because their accomplishments are so many and so meaningful, but I urge you to follow both of them to learn more about their important work. We're very, very grateful to them for sharing their expertise with us today. Esmeetra Kalita is Senior Vice President for News News, Opinion and Programming for CNN across an array of platforms. In her previous role as Managing Editor for Editorial Strategy for the Los Angeles Times, where she helped LATimes.com traffic soar to 60 million unique visitors monthly. She led many innovations in both storytelling and reporting, including hiring a correspondent to cover black Twitter. Professor Rasmus Kleiss-Nielsen is the director of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. He's also a professor of political communication at Oxford. And from my perspective, as a recent fellow at Reuters, I can state as fact that Rasmus is indeed a leading global thought leader on the future of journalism, very generous with his knowledge and insight. And wow, what an outstanding teacher. Rasmus has done and led extensive groundbreaking research on changes in the news media, political communication and activism, and the role of digital media. He's a much sought after presenter to international news industry events and academic conferences and often cited by the world's media on, on pre- all the pressing issues that we're going to talk about today. So thank you S. Mitra. thank you Rasmus. Rasmus, welcome. And now to Anna Maria Tremonti to lead our conversation. Thank you.
1: Hi everyone. Um, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you both about this issue and get your thoughts on it. So I'm just going to start with asking you each, what in your opinion in this moment in time is the biggest threat to journalism right now? Rasmus, do you want to start?
2: I, I hate to make one just one choice. I mean, I think uh, there is a war on free expression going on across the world. It's a very serious threat uh, to journalism. There is a very real risk of a disconnect between much of the public uh, and journalism that they don't feel reflect their identities and their values. Um, and, and that also is undermining the trust that people often have in the news that, that journalists produce. But I suppose that the center point of our discussion today is uh, is the issue of, of what is the funding for independent professional journalism going to look like in the future? And it's very clear that the business models that used to fund news production are existentially threatened um, because they're based on forms of media consumption uh, that are fading away as people embrace digital mobile and platform media uh, and its dominant platforms capture a large share of the advertising that used to go to news publishers. And that's a very serious challenge uh, for for news organizations, but more broadly for public life uh, in the sense that, you know, we all depend on Sustainable uh, independent news media to invest in professional journalism. Um, and if they can't make that business work, then we as citizens in our society will be worse off for it.
1: Mitra, I'd like to hear from you on this as well.
3: Sure. So I think there's, um, I, I would agree with what, what Rasmus just outlined. Um, I, I think there's an internal and an external, and they actually have everything to do with each other. So externally, Um, I think it's a lack of trust in institutions, including the media. And for many factors that uh, Rasmus is outlining, including institutions like government and their connection to media and and the public's faith um, in both. Um, Internally, I relate the trust issue because I, I feel like our inability to pivot newsrooms quickly to the needs of our users and our audiences continues to be an issue. And this has implications, um, as he just said, for our business model, for trust, and for representation, which is an area that I've worked on uh, for my whole career. And I I really do think that um, much of the destabilizing that you're seeing right now, is is directly connected to people not feeling like their media is personal to them. Um, And I really think that the only way you can start to establish trust is if we address the issue of whose standards are we working under? Who is your audience? Um, are Are there ways that we're shorthanding norms and the way things have always been that in essence are actually erasing large portions of our population. So I'll leave it there. But I, I think that um, you, you kind of can't talk about the lack of trust and the destabilizing without talking about um, our own role in our own failure to examine um, our, our, our own newsrooms.
1: And you use a word that I want you just to uh, um, talk a little bit more about, about a failure to pivot. Um, so where do you see um, that failure to pivot. Can you
3: actually point to some specific examples? So I would I would say that there's good news and bad news and I'll, I'll use the example that's um, right in front of us right now with the pandemic, right? Um, and in some ways, the, the good news is that the pandemic forced newsrooms to say, what is our relationship with our audiences? Um, and, it, and and we're literally needing to hold their hands, through a life or death situation, right? Um, There were some of us who felt like that should not have been relegated to public journalism, solutions journalism, um, you know, audience centric, like all all the things that I think we used to characterize this as that somehow were extra, right? As opposed to fundamental to or journalism, So I, I would almost address your question by saying I think you've seen evidence of being able to pivot in the pandemic and nonetheless, if you look at uh, some of the coverage, I think it took a little while to get us to a place of an acceptance that returning to normal or returning to certain ways of doing things might actually be impossible. And so because of the way, this is not just journalism, this is every industry, right? We kind of revert to the comfortable. Um, I think we just wanna kind of hurry up and get back to the thing we know. When by definition, journalism should be forcing us to reinvent everything from our stories, our delivery on a much more regular basis. And so the failure to pivot um, I worry is uh, the, the responding to audience in the moment. And my dog is whining, so I'm going to let him out of the door. I'm so sorry. This I, is a challenge of virtual. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, if I was distracted, it's because of the damn dog. I'll be,
1: I'll, uh, I will I wondered whose puppy was doing yeah. that. <laughs> well, while you do that, I'll ask Rasmus to continue because Rasmus, um, you're nodding your head as she's been speaking. So what are you thinking?
2: I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I think it's really, really important that we recognize uh, that what journalists are trying to do is very hard uh, to make sense of the world in real time, in a world where many powerful interests want to withhold information or misrepresent it or in other ways mislead the public, uh, sometimes very fundamentally, sometimes in more sort of subtle and gray zone uh, area ways. Uh, That's difficult and it's not getting easier. And the role that, news media executives have of building a sustainable business around that uh, to ensure its independence um, and its future is also hard and I just want to sort of recognize that that it's always I think dangerous for someone like me to sort of play the the role of the Monday morning quarterback and telling people who are trying to do really difficult things you know what they should have thought of and whatnot and I, I really want to stress that that this stuff is hard we're living through an unprecedented change in our societies, in our technologies, and in our business at the same time, um, and navigating that is difficult stuff. That said, I really want to stress how much I agree with uh, Mitra about this question of whether, internally, in the professional industry, and of those of us around it who care about it, whether we're always sort of being our best selves, if you will, in terms of really trying to think through where we need to be and where we need to go. And I suppose the way I think about this myself, if I can simplify and exaggerate somewhat, is I, I think we can sort of think of a journalistic profession and more broadly a news media industry where, of course, there are a lot of people in the middle. But I think there is a rear guard who believe that the problem is that the world has changed and who prefer the world of yesterday and would like to do tomorrow the same thing they did yesterday or 10 years ago.
0: And I understand that
2: there were many attractions to that world, perhaps particularly for those organizations who occupied the commanding heights of the media environment and they're very, very powerful and very profitable and saw no problems with very, being very powerful and very profitable as long as they were the ones who had the power and the profit. Um, and then what I think of as a vanguard uh, who think that the problem is that journalism and news media haven't changed enough uh, to to stay in, in, in tune with the world in which we live. And, and as I said, I understand the attractions of the past, though I think we sometimes romanticize it, uh, I, I don't look back in 1990s journalism sort of a high point when we think of issues like inclusion, for example, uh, or for that matter, the notes uh, with the run up to the Iraq War, the financial crisis, or coverage of climate change. You know, there were things that were better in the past in terms of salaries and job security and the like. Sure, um, but I think we have a lot of things we need to reckon with. Um, But but I think there is sort of this struggle internally in the profession industry between, you know, essentially people who think that things were better in the past and then people who think that journalism in the future should be even better than it was.
1: Well, uh, it's, it's so true that people were sounding the death knell for journalism as we know it long before this year, um, but I'm wondering then, so what has this year of pandemic and very serious reckoning done to accelerate um, things in your mind and also has it created opportunities that you, we haven't anticipated? Mitra, do you wanna start?
3: So I, I do think that the pandemic hastened um, the need to just be more audience centric, I, I really do. and I. Um, I point to a much of the work at CNN, which, you know, in its 40 years of existence, um, we're probably most like the best of the internet before the internet came along, just because we've been in your living rooms. Um, We we launched with intimacy and accessibility. It's like, that's the the, the best of of cable news, right? And so I I think that we really leaned into um, that, that piece of how can we help people um, live their lives and make daily decisions right now. What we also saw was just a lot of interactivity with the audience around what are your questions. And um, I think we make the mistake in journalism of sometimes making things more complicated than they need to be. And I always I say in news meetings all the time, you know, the obvious story is worth doing. And so those basic questions, which there were thousands of them in those early days, and and it grew to tens of thousands. um, And we just won an award for this work actually, but um, ended up just directing our coverage in a way that was like, look, every day we gotta give people the latest on the science, keep it simple. Um, We we launched a newsletter, we launched a podcast with Sanjay Gupta, which I think is also notable because in some ways, a doctor like him, his identity makes all the difference to his journalism, right? And so that's been, as, as you guys know, a long debate in newsrooms of like, how much of yourself do you bring in? And it's like, the guy's a doctor. That's why people are listening to him. Let's, you know, that that's an advantage for us. Um, to, to step back and kind of look at the industry writ large, um, you know, I feel like every week we read about another closure um, of a community media outlet or, and and so that, um, I, I think it did give kind of cover to those who are maybe financially ailing and under the guise of the pandemic, it's like, listen, we're, we're just going to have to shut our doors. And, and I know that's um, uh, been the case uh, in some Canadian outlets as well. So um, that's, you know, you, you start to lament the demise and yet our industry, to some of what Rasmus was saying earlier, um, can operate in a state of nostalgia where we're like, you know, we are lamenting what was versus innovating what needs to be. Um, and then the, the other piece that I think you're referring to is just the global protests that we saw in the wake of George Floyd, which I think were in a new moment for journalism in um, confronting its own role in systemic racism and really um, making sure that this time is different, right? I've I've been um, in mainstream newsrooms for about 25 years. There's one of these reckonings every three or four years, if you will, and this time felt different. And I, I, I put that squarely on a generation that's younger and demanding better from, you know, even folks like me who have spent my whole career in this, we came out of a certain system and we forced that system as the way that they have to operate. And they're saying, no, no, we have to do better. We need to re-examine our role in this and also uh, examine the missions of our organization and how inclusive they truly are. Rasmus.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, what Mitra describes is that sometimes change is about sort of developing a consensus and, and incrementally changing things, but sometimes change is about conflict. Sometimes we disagree. Um, sometimes we have different interests, different ideals. Uh, it can be by generation or it can be other things. I mean, you can think about this in the in the area of the business, too. I mean, the, the brutal truth is that there is a generation uh, who ki- might quite conceivably think it's going to last their time out. Um, but if we run our organizations that way, we're going to be learn- left with sort of the burned-out ruins of a great industry. Um, and the younger generation of journalists uh, and, and, and editors coming up the ranks are the ones who are going to pay the price for that conservatism. Is that's the way we we deal with things? Um, it's not pleasant to confront the fact that um, you know much of the public don't trust us anymore, um, and that. Many people don't feel that they, their voices, their communities, their values are being respected and reflected um, in the news and and turn their back on us quite concretely, not just in terms of not trusting us, but also not even paying attention to us, especially online, where news is a fragment of the time that people spend um, with media. But we have to confront those harsh truths. Um, We have to build uh, our business in the real world, not in the world as we prefer it to be, but the world as it is. And I would also say that I think it behooves a profession in an industry that trades in truth to be willing to confront the truth about itself as well. Um, the same way that a news journalist would never dream of softening uh, a story just because it's unwelcome news for the audience. Um, I, th- I think we have to confront the reality of where we are as an industry. We wanna build a sustainable business. And that reality is that you know, the environment we had in the 1990s, low choice for me as a media user, high market power for publishers over advertisers as a consequence, um, led to very profitable and very stable businesses, even in a world where print newspaper circulation was in structural decline and where television audiences were aging. And as we enter the noughts and the tens, of course, as we move to a digital environment where there is suddenly high choice for me as a user, and consequently, low market power for publishers over advertisers. um, That veneer of stability gives way to the reality that we live in an infinitely more competitive media environment now. And a lot of the time, news is losing that uh, competition for our attention. And advertisers, who never cared about the news, let's be real, they cared about the audience. They go where the audience is, and and that audience is on the large platforms. Are there issues around market concentration uh, and market power? Absolutely. Uh, are there things that should be looked at there? Yes. And I think it's good that more and more governments are looking at that. Will that magically make the business problems go away? I'm not convinced they will, however necessary these interventions might be. I mean, if we confront the reality that what advertisers are buying is attention, um, you know, if news is 4 or 5% of the time that people spend online, we can't expect advertising news uh, uh, advertising around news to be more than, four, more than 4 or 5% of the advertising spend, even if some of the large platforms are reined in. Who will benefit from that reigning in? Well, I will as a consumer. But in terms of advertising, well, the advertisers will benefit. And then the other sellers of advertising, who are they? Other platforms, right? If you look at the top 10 sellers of global uh, of digital advertising globally, nine of them are platforms and one of them is a telco company. Um, so it, it's a different environment. And I realize it's not welcome, uh, but it's reality. And if we don't uh, confront that reality, um, then we're going to see the sort of slow waning of businesses that are still relying on offline business models that serve an older uh, and, and 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 aging uh, audience uh, people who will eventually die more until it's being the rule even for people who read reprint newspapers or watch tv we have to build a digital business a sustainable business it might be smaller than the one we had in the past but the important thing is that it's sustainable and that it funds independent professional journalism that actually meets people where they are not where journalists would like them to be because they made more money and had more power there
1: Well, Ed, this folds right into something I wanted to ask about. A group of Canadian print and online publishers um, calling themselves News Media Canada released a report last month that urged the Canadian government to force Google and Facebook to compensate news companies for their content. Australia is doing a variation of this. The Canadian group says such a move would allow Canadian newspapers to recover about $620 million in annual revenues. What's your view of this, Rasmus?
2: I mean, I should say first, you know, my institute takes uh, funding from a range of different sources, including both Facebook and Google. Uh, I want to be clear about that. Uh, we also work with many other news organizations as well, and the Thomson Rogers Foundation, our core sponsor. Um, my personal view is that uh, there is a clear risk of market failure when it comes to public interest journalism, and that that raises, I think, a question of whether some form of political intervention and public subsidy is merited. Uh, my personal view is that, as a taxpayer, I'd be happy to use public money to support quality journalism, but that's a political issue, and it's for the public to decide and their elected officials to decide. Um, in terms of the um, the focus on, uh, on how the platforms might be part of this, I am personally more convinced about the idea of essentially reforming our tax regime so that these companies pay tax that's commensurate with their revenues in different jurisdictions. And then investing that money potentially in subsidizing the media—that's uh, the model we have proof of concept of that works in other countries, um, provided that it's done in a way that keeps the politicians and the bureaucrats out of the decision making. This is a model that works, and we could tax these companies to help fund it. Uh, that, that seems like a reasonable way to do it. The sort of the idea um, that um, that that's that governments should essentially uh, intervene in business-to-business relations and dictate prices, some form of sort of command economy. Um, I have a lot of reservations about whether that's an efficient model. uh, And I I do wonder whether in the long term, journalists and publishers really want to be in a world where their business models relies, A, on being on platforms that we have many reasons to be skeptical of and may not want to be on all the time. And be where politicians are the one to dictate the prices i mean if we want to hold power to account and power is held in part by platforms and by politicians do we really want to create an environment where we both more reliant on both platforms and politicians i have some reservations about that as a citizen and as an observer but i understand why publishers are fighting their corner um you know their business is under pressure and this is one way they can go um, is to try to lobby politicians uh for for an intervention um i suppose that um i'm more optimistic Um, and and more encouraged by attempts to just build a sustainable business rather than spend money in lobbying, which is a slow and uncertain process um, and where sometimes um, things may not end up where you uh, want them to end up, or even if they do, may come with uh, hidden costs and risks um, that complicate, if you will, the benefits uh, sort.
1: I just want to remind our audience that you can submit questions anytime using the questions tab on your screen. Um, Mitra, picking up on what Rasmus is saying, you know, this is also happening against the background of um, the US Justice Department and 11 states filing an antitrust suit against Google. Will we see significant realignment on this front in the future, do you think? So I
3: do think that you're at least seeing the news media um, assert itself in a way that I haven't seen. You know, I've been in digital journalism for about eight, nine years now, about a, almost a decade, and um, and I would say that the recent overtures at least have the media more united on we're not getting in bed with the platforms unless we get something out of it, right? Now, you could argue we should have started out that way, right? Because that would have prevented 10 years of a lot of pain, maybe long, actually longer than that. I'm, I'm the one who was late on the digital bandwagon, not everyone else. Um, so, I I think it's a a first step to at least get alignment on that. Um, However, and, and, and I feel like we're being so damning of our own industry, which happens in these, but it's a lot easier for us to lob blame on the platforms than for us to say, and what has been our role in making it easier for us to uh, serve our users, right? How have we made accessibility of our content, the creation of community, uh, the ability to interact with us, the ability to ask us questions? Um, how have we been facilitating that process? Because in the absence of that, we've we've ceded control of what I think of as journalism to the platforms, and so. I'm happy uh, that we're seeing progress on um, some of the antitrust uh, work that you're alluding to, as well as media outlets saying, we really need to get more out of this than a few hundred thousand here and there, when actually, guys, your model is fundamentally dependent on our content, right? This is, you're absolutely beholden to us, but not beholden to us. Um, but I do think we need to look at our own role and our direct relationships with our audiences. Um,
1: well, and it's interesting because if I, I, I want to go back to something you talked about before, which is the you know the the whole reckoning over diversity internally in newsrooms, and then externally how how newsrooms function uh, out there covering things, and some of the most. Um, some of the most important bits of information we have from journalists who have brought this to everyone's attention and in, insisted on saying no you have to look at this and change this have come through social media platforms because they could not make these points through their own legacy media platforms mm-hmm. so uh, when you talk about the need to pivot and being open it it needs on all, all fronts right i mean it's a it's a, a real mix of of different things right now that we're confronting, and we have to really um, really pay attention to.
3: That's right, and and it's it's you know it's questionable whether uh, Black Lives Matter as a movement would have um, been able to galvanize the whole world without the benefit of the platform. And yet, uh, what was so remarkable about that movement is it's. Largely a decentralized movement right it, it's grassroots and you know, my daughter. Yes, she sees where protests are on Instagram, but it's a largely kind of local community driven um, uh, Gathering right and and I think that's something that I've been just watching um, closely this year as an example of how do you retain authenticity and messaging but leverage the platforms in a way that doesn't corrupt your message, right? And so, um, so I, I, I guess that's, again, like I, I think it's a little bit, um, it's a little easier for us to blame the platforms for all of our problems. It's a, it's a big reason that we're in the mess that we're in, but it's not the only reason. Do you,
1: either of you see new business models that will thrive and grow beyond this pandemic?
2: I mean, absolutely. Uh, no question. Um, I mean, I think in, in, this may sound a little strange saying it in this moment in the year of the plague, um, but I actually would say that we're in a better place than we were two or three years ago in terms of seeing proof of concept of things at work. And I want to be very clear about what I mean by work. By work, I do not mean making the same kind of money that people made in the 1990s. I do not mean making the shareholders happy who invested in the 1990s and have seen Many of these publicly traded companies tank uh, over time Uh, that's not what i mean what i mean by work is i see people who are doing sustainable business around independent professional news reporting in different parts of the world now uh, i think the most impressive of these are some of them are digital born organizations Uh, if you look at a country like france media part uh, which calls itself rather quaintly an online newspaper has had an unbroken record of increase in paying subscribers since they started um, and expanded their newsroom broken really important stories they are doing really important investigative journalism in france and they're building sustainable business around it look at Diario punto s in spain different model bigger advertising component membership rather than subscription again growth sustainable business even in this year where they turn to their members for additional support as advertising declined during the plague uh, you know again really really impressive we should recognize and and be encouraged by and learn from this example of success but it's not only the new entrants there are also legacy organizations that are turning around their business and building on the incredible privilege it is to build from a century old brand and from the, the quality of a newsroom that's been sustained by print. Of course, we all know the examples of the New York Times uh, and a few others like the Wall Street Journal and the FT that have the sort of the unfair advantage of playing to a global elite affluent upmarket niche, economists and the like. Leave those aside. In Europe, for example, you have small markets defined by language um, that are much more comparable to the situation in many other parts of the world. Dagens New Hitter in Sweden, they are... Reporting growth in revenues in a year where advertising is so hard hit by the pandemic. It's a legacy newspaper that's turned the business around. It's digital first. Still doing print, of course. It's an important niche medium for some audiences. But it's a digital first organization with a really impressive journalism, really impressive business. Le Monde in France. Louis Dreyfus, the CEO, talks about a virtuous circle where quality journalism generates subscriptions, which in turn allows further investment uh, into quality journalism. Now, the challenge here, I think, is that These are all business models that are, A, primarily oriented towards relatively affluent uh, and upmarketed lead audiences that are willing to pay, Um, and B, they are generally national titles and sort of winner-takes-most situations where the success of one can come at the expense of others, and this doesn't necessarily help people who are doing local um, or people who are doing popular journalism for audiences who at this stage are not really seeing any news that they feel is worth paying for. Uh, which i think is sort of quite a reminder of our inability to really effectively serve people who are less privileged than, than myself right so local is a big challenge right you have essentially uh, facebook and google come from one side and eat your advertising um and then from the other side comes the new york times and the washington post and eat your subscribers and then from the side comes the athletic and eat your sports fans that's a challenging place to be and i'm really well, worried I'm about
1: local. Let me interrupt because I just want to ask Mitra that question when it comes to is it would seem to me that this is the time when local journalism matters so much in a pandemic, you need to know what's going on around the corner.
3: I think that's a good transition because we've buried the lead, which is that I'm leaving CNN in two weeks. Um, So and uh, and and it's precisely uh, relating to what we've just been talking about. I do think that there is an opportunity in local, um, in almost the kind of exactly how Rasmus just with his hands laid out, the, and you can feel like it's coming in on you on all sides because you don't fit into any of those things, and yet um, in models that largely favor scale, what is the plight of the local news publisher? And so... Um, just in like a very small, I'll give you a small example of what I've been working on. And then on the other side of um, of my departure from CNN, I'm happy to come back and, and talk more about it because hopefully it'll be more fully baked by, um, by then. But in the middle of the pandemic, um, my husband, myself and a bunch of neighbors did launch a newsletter in our neighborhood here in Queens, um, in New York City, uh, it's called Epicenter NYC. And we're in one of the hardest hit communities in the world um, by coronavirus. And um it dawned on me, I mean, this was not an attempt, this was not my exit strategy from San and by any, by any means, but what happened was um we were really hard hit and we found ourselves as neighbors fielding dozens and dozens of emails for help. And at the same time, just as 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 we were getting into June and some of the debate around George Floyd and, and journalism and what objectivity means, um it it felt irresponsible for me not to, as a good neighbor, use the skills that journalism has given me, and as a journalist to not apply who I am as a neighbor, right? And so we launched this newsletter with a real eye towards uh, giving and getting help. It's an extension of those emails, which was, you know, my husband's bike mechanic just died, his um, body needs to be claimed from the city, the Mexican consulate can't help us. And you know, I'm pretty good at navigating bureaucracy, and so we were able to, you know, raise some money, secure his body, have the remains shipped to his family in Mexico, and sort of on and on and on. And so, um, and including childcare and small business help. And again, like everyone listening has gone through versions of this in their own communities. It dawns on me that many of us are not consumers of local news, but we. We are overlapping identities, right? So, in some ways, we could be infinite, um, infinite products that might be considered local can actually serve us. And so, just in this newsletter, we started partnering with the Haitian Times, for example, a, a community newspaper here in New York City, on how to serve small businesses better. Um, you know, they'll run our content; we'll run theirs. Um, you know remote learning in New York City is a mess right now so the city's trying to help with different apps in Creole and Spanish and so again these are small examples but I do think that you don't have to accept the limits of scale if you think about the inclusive nature of community and so that's where I'm trying to orient at least my next step and and I've found some great partners that, seem like their version of community building and creating journalism is also inclusive and expansive in their global view and their local view and so that's um that is another area of experimentation that, you know, I'm, ha- I'm happy to uh, come back and talk about. It. And then just-
1: uh, yeah, yeah, that's really inspirational to hear. And I'm just looking at the clock because I know we have a lot of questions. And so in line with that, I'm, I'm you know, there've been several questions on this uh, for like, how do you navigate this as a journalism grad stepping into this world right now, or as a freelancer, trying to figure out where, where you go to, or as a laid off journalist, trying to figure out how you move forward. Given what the two of you know, what kinds of things do you want journalists to be thinking about right now in these positions?
3: Oh, um, I mean, I feel like get the basics right is always what I start with, right? Like this, you gotta almost learn the structure of the news story and like I said, navigating that bureaucracy in order to break it and create new models. So. I think some of that, and then um, I do. I do see the the understanding of distribution more important than ever before, and to really think about your end user. The the three basic principles I apply to stories are: what's the story, who's it for, and how will we find them? And I try not to have reporters file any copy until they've answered those three questions. Hmm. Rasmus, what are your thoughts on
2: that? I mean, I just want to say i'm sorry it's tough i mean it's a really it's a brutal environment right now um and the pandemic isn't making it any easier um i mean i think we are seeing uh, some organizations that are you know betting their future um on um, doing less of the sort of uh, the the sort of negative stereotype of online journalism of the notes and the and the tens sort of the journalism if you will of rewriting press releases taking things from social and pushing it out quickly there is a lot of that too but um i think we're seeing more and more uh, organizations who are thinking you know in a world of information abundance we can't stand out just by shoveling stuff on a website we can only stand out by doing things that are better than things that shovel onto a website um and in that sense i think it's it's true that almost everything else has changed but one thing i think hasn't changed is that the idea of seeking truth and reporting it is at the core of what journalism is about as a profession uh, but also as a business
1: well and it's interesting i'm getting a, a a variation of questions about media literacy like how do we now you make the point we have like we have so much information it's an avalanche of information and i think i was reading on the on the latest reuters report actually rasmus a quote where you know we've it was once to journalism was about giving information where there was none and now there's you have to kind of sort through the information because there's so much so how how do you think about media literacy how do when people are not, when they're looking for help what can they do
2: i mean I think there are a lot of issues where where media literacy is a big is a big concern if you will um But it's a little bit along the lines of what uh, Mitra said earlier in the conversation. I think sometimes the risk is that we try to externalize our problems and sort of say, well, what's the platform's fault? What's the politician's fault? And perhaps sometimes what's the public's fault? Um, And some things of course are the platform's fault or the politician's fault or the public's fault. I I have to say, I think we need to think more about audience literacy than about media literacy in a way. I think we need to be really realistic about how people actually use media and what, what they value and where we fit into that and that a lot of the things we did in the past are, are not really valuable anymore. There are not many people left in the world who have a problem in their life that fits you know, 150 articles on dead trees. Um, and, and doing digital journalism as if we are just you know, printing, a, printing a newspaper that happens to be online is not really helping people very much. And we can see this extremely clearly from audience behavior, including internal analytics, but also external research like we do at the Wordist Institute, so, you know, um, you know, are there things that could be helped by media literacy and, and, and civic education and the like? I'm sure there are. But, but I think the thing that's more immediately within our control in the industry and the profession is that we need to understand the public. And if we understand the public, we can serve them better. And if we can serve them better, then I'm confident they'll appreciate us more and also value us more in a commercial sense.
1: Mitra? So...
3: I I mean, I I don't have a whole lot um, more to add uh, to what Rasmus was saying, except that I I would say um, there's there's a piece of the audience literacy that is uncomfortable for a journalist because I think we also have to nod to the audience knowing more than we do, and so um, much of you know even your framework of like we would deliver information in the absence of it, but you know speaking of like the genesis of how Jackson Heights started to get through the pandemic, we were emailing each other for the answers, right? And so is there something we can extract from that behavior where communities turn to each other and actually some of the most successful subscription models out there say people are coming for our content, paying for our content, but they also seem to really want to hang out with each other. And I I think that's um, another component of the audience literacy that might be a great byproduct or or another model, if you will.
1: And I'm looking at, there's there's so many questions here, but some of them have touched on the very things I've just asked in the last couple of minutes. Um, uh, Here's another question. Are publicly funded, publicly accountable, journalistically independent public broadcasters a solution to a failed economic model for news organizations? Rasmus?
2: I mean, I think they, at their best, are outstanding uh, parts of our media environment. Um, And much of the public seems to agree when we look at use and at trust uh, and the like. Um, It's a fundamentally political decision in our societies, whether we want to create and fund such, and whether we want to genuinely respect their independence or try to convert them into state media, as we see in many countries around the world. Um, And I would say that as much as I believe in the promise and, and, and value of public service media, even in the best case scenario, I would be extremely uncomfortable as a citizen uh, with a world in which that was the only uh, source of news. Um, I really really believe that we need a mix of competing private commercial providers, potentially public service and then nonprofit media, diverse range of different funding models uh, that can compete with one another, um, because public service, too, has limitations and is vulnerable, of course, to political pressure because of the funding model.
1: Uh, there's another question here about the ethics. Um, with fewer jobs and media companies downsizing, how do we ensure ethical
3: journalism survives? Well, I I do think that that's an area, just from a training perspective, which relates to an earlier question of are we... Um, Allowing people to make the mistakes they need to get to that place of ethics. And um, you know, by the time you get to my age, you feel like you've seen certain patterns, and so you know exactly how to respond to certain stories and certain requests and certain disgruntled corners, um, if you will. So what one is just, are we lifting up um, a generation? On these ethics, even as we're confronting whether the standards that we've been using are equitable, just, um, inclusive, right? I mean, sort of gets at what I was talking about earlier. And then on the, I think there's a hint of the um, uh, the kind of church versus state divide of business versus um, editorial. And this is one where I actually think intent really matters, right? And labeling really matters, like just straight up, you know, is this an advertisement or is this editorial content? And um, again, I, I said this earlier, but sometimes the obvious answer or the obvious story is just, well, you just label whatever whatever something is. And, and have we done a good job distinguishing um, sponsor content from, you know, other campaigns and so forth? So that's what I'd say on that.
2: If I can just add, I mean, I, I think in some ways, a couple of years ago, we were worried that the internet was only alive, you know, allowing you to know, do cats and, and, and slideshows and, and memes and whatnot as, as forms of digital journalism. I think in some ways now we're almost in the opposite situation that the kinds of journalism that thrive the most, both editorially but also commercially in an online environment, are really upmarket uh, and in many ways very ethical. My, my concern about that is not so much about their ethics, but more that they are elite media um and serving an elite audience and i think we have a real issue around inequality that's in part about uh, d- diversity but also about class uh, if you will and about um whether the journalism as ethical as it is is actually in touch with people's lived experience i love the new york times i used to live in new york i still read it i would say i sort of frowned a bit uh when i saw a story about you know buying your first home at eight hundred thousand us dollars um knowing that in new york the median household income is something like fifty five thousand dollars a year um, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with serving an elite, but we have to be clear about what's going on here, which is that uh, there is a risk that journalism is out of touch with a lot of people's lived experience. And seeing something like that, if you're struggling to get by um, in, you know, uh, East Harlem, you know, doesn't really make you feel that The New York Times is there for you, I have to say. Um, and, and I think we have to think about the ethics, yes, but also about equity uh, and inclusion uh, in, in how we do the news.
1: I'm, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but that's uh, really something to think about at uh, both at the the publishing level and at the, the at the you know roll up your sleeves, go out there and get the story level. Thank you both for your insights today. Thank, Thank you. you. Mitra Kalita and Rasmus Kleis-Nielsen. And thanks everybody for joining us and for your questions. I tried to wrap a few of them together because there were so many great ones. Um, Stay with us for our upcoming talks on November 12th, no matter what the outcome of the US election, there's gonna be a lot to discuss from an assessment of media coverage to how the election result will impact Canada. My guests will be Joy Malbin, Washington bureau chief for CTV National News and Paul Hunter, correspondent based in Washington for CBC News. You may not know this, but they're married and uh, they work for two big rival networks. So there's lots to talk to them about, about what they've been observing and uh, how they see all of this unfolding. November 19th, we explore the early results of a study on journalists and their mental health given the variety of challenges and high stakes they face in covering the pandemic. Our show will feature the study's authors, Dr. Anthony Feinstein, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and Mira Selva, Director of the Journalist Fellowship Program at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Stay with us for that one, that'll really uh, touch on a lot of important things as well. And a reminder that you can follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or visit the website to sign up for the newsletter. See you next time. Thanks for watching.